We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. Let's say you make it to the top. What's next? Relish in the glory of your accomplishments? Okay, sure, for a minute. But then you move forward. Take the 2021 Escalade. Cadillac's newest arrival is more than just a celebration of iconic luxury. It's the most technologically advanced Escalade ever. Because arriving is just the beginning. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Crossing route, Gurley makes the catch 20. First down, he hurdles. Far side of the field, stays on his feet. Inside the 10, Todd Gurley making his case for MVP. He throws back shoulder. Higby reaches out and makes an incredible catch for a first down. Off his back foot, he throws to the end zone. Cooper Cup leaping to make the catch. Out of bounds. He has it for six. He's got a knee-high snap looking left. Now over the middle. He pump fakes. He rolls to his right with Connor Barwin pursuing. He knocks him down. The ball is thrown up in the air and batted away. Incomplete. The Rams defense clinches it. Goff will come on the field for victory formation. Rams sideline across the field from us erupts in celebration. And so the playoffs are coming back to L.A. This January at the Coliseum. We, not me, versus the NFC. And for the first time since 2003, the Rams are NFC West champions. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. This is Derek C. Apollo joined by, man, it's been a while since it's been on pod with me, Justin Robinson, J-Rob. From the Rampage Radio Podcast. Buddy, how you doing? Breathing and ready to watch the Patriots go down. He's already calling it. He's already calling it. Um, folks, this is kind of one of those podcasts where we want to take care of some business beforehand. We do have a couple of things we want to discuss. The, the, the Adam Schefter report today. Some of the St. Louis stuff today. We're going to put some of that to rest. And also, we have an interview. One of our first preview interviews we have um, is with Matt Chatham. 
for who works for Nesson, the New England Sports Network, the, the Athletic in Boston, and of course runs the Patriots podcast called The Real Thing, uh, Real Things Patriot Podcast, and he spent a lot of time with us. He's also also a former Ram. Never played the game. Later on, made the Patriots played in the 2002 Super Bowl against the Rams. So there are lots of tidbits in that interview for us to discuss. But, you know, Justin, before you even get in there and get knee-deep into some of the um, that interview, there are a couple of things we want to address. Because I, I tell you, man, this is driving me nuts. This is really driving me nuts. All right. The first thing that's driving me nuts right now is the never-ending garbage over the Saints game. I'm not sure if you did. You see the report yet? I'm kind of I throwing this on you last I minute. I have not. Go, go ahead. Go ahead and give a quick debrief. Okay. So yeah, you know, just by the way, Justin came on late today. I, this is my bad. Uh, I just throwing him curveballs just just to just to keep him off his game a little bit. You know, just trying to show him up. No, seriously, Adam Schefter came out today reporting that four officials from the Rams Saints game were um, from SoCal. And kind of inviting the insinuation that these guys were corrupted um, by the game. In the article itself, it does not state that. It states that league officials do not believe that they were corrupted. But just even mentioning at this point, it's driving uh, Rams social media crazy, Saints social media especially crazy. And it's driving in the um, the narrative that somehow, some way, these officials were bought and paid for or corrupted by the Rams-Saints matchup. And um, this, this is to me... A, a story that's never ending. And the reason why I'm doing this now is because we are, I'm talking about this now, I'm talking about a couple of things today because the rest of the week we're not, doing, we're not going to do that. We're going to talk Rams, Patriots. This, this circus around the Super Bowl being tainted, it's garbage. And yet here we are, a week before the game, still talking about it. So this is the last time we're going to talk about this stuff. And I, I do want your thoughts on that report. It's, um, I can tell you it's unnerving me some, Justin. Well, Simply, as a professional official myself in the game of baseball, um, back in the day when the World Series was quote-unquote fixed and things like that, it was much easier to get away with being paid to you know, let a pitch go or call a ball a strike or to call it out when a guy was safe or things like that. It was much easier to do those things because we didn't have the technology we didn't have the documentation. We didn't have, you know, evaluators, you know, following guys around and keeping all tabs on them. And I honestly think it's it's the it's the way it is today. It's way different. If you could just think how hard it is for an official to actually under the table be paid by somebody and not be under the microscope versus be assigned this game speaks, you know, about that person's character, each official's character. And when you start throwing out these stories like this. You're questioning the integrity, not not only of the game, but of the official and the person themselves who none of us know personally. We have no idea who these person, who these people are, what their lives are. And so I think it's really unfair to to just and I'm not being biased. I'm being completely pragmatic here as a professional official. I think it's completely unfair to just say, oh, well, this guy was paid because of this. And, and he was from here, from here. Dude, their officials are from everywhere. If you look at Major League Baseball umpires are from all over the country. And, you know, to, to say that is, is really blasphemy, really, because it's very difficult for one to, you know, you want to lose. Do you want to lose your job over that? Do you want do I want to lose my job over this? And, and the answer is no. I mean, dude, we put in time and hours and hours and years and years and months and years and uh, of our life and sacrifice to get to where we are. And the same mm-hmm. is to be said for NFL officials. And so. 
I, I understand. I'm not saying it did not happen. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I know the ins and outs. It didn't happen. What I'm saying is the chances of that happening are very slim to none. And again, when you question somebody's integrity, I just think that's that's unfair. So that's well, my, I'm gonna say my it thoughts didn't happen. about it. I'm going to say it didn't happen. Uh, you can look at the you can look at all the film to know it didn't happen. I would say this too. I mean, uh, if it's someone being bought and paid for, or just being influenced by the fact that this is a hometown team, the calls from the game. Well, let's let's let me rephrase that. J. Rob, the missed calls. There were so many missed calls in that game. Why can't we just call it what it was? A poorly officiated game, and that happens. Well, I, I would even I would even say this, man. Like. I actually appreciate that they weren't throwing flags left and right. I, I mean, it, it kind of brought you back a little bit to the way football used to be kind of played, which is where you could do some of the grabbing, where you could do a little bit of the holding, a little bump and run. I mean, it kind of brought you back to what the game kind of used to look like before all the technology and all the flags and nitpicking and ticky-tack calls came into effect. And so I kind of appreciated the fact that they let the guys play. And, uh, I mean, it, it did have a bearing on the game at the end. But, again, the whole storyline is, well, how did you let the Rams come back from 13 to nothing? How did you let them come back from 20 to 10? How, why did you pass the ball on first down late in the game? There's so many what-ifs, what-ifs, and buts. And I saw, you know, you know, hindsight 2020, but they let them play. And they mm-hmm. were consistent on letting them play. I mean, so – and that's kind of just my opinion. Well, you write it down, too. Uh, Rams did have seven penalties in that game. Let me rephrase it again. Seven penalties. Seven, Saints had three. I also look at this and go, well, okay, on that very same play that is being questioned that the Rams, quote unquote, got the Tana victory. I mean, we're seeing footage now from the flip side behind the passer where we see Aaron Donald with hands to the face, and Brockers, I'll say slightly being held. It's not as egregious as other holding calls would be, but you can call them. But the hands to the face was not slightly egregious. It wasn't a hands to the face. You didn't call that on that. You could, this could have been. A, it should, if you if you want to be honest about what should have been called in that play, p- pass interference or roughing the, um, or um, unnecessary roughness on Roby Coleman, and of course the hands to face on Donald. How about the again that we talked about the face mask that they didn't call on uh, on Goff or on Cooks earlier? How about the mm-hmm. the uh, the unnecessary roughness or whatever you want to call personal foul for roughing the passer that could have been called on Donald? It wasn't called. Let's just say either two ways. Either they let them play or it was a poorly called game or both. So you can get through, you know, it could be both. But to say that, you know, one side got over the other, no, there were missed calls on both sides. There were. Uh, but again, I, I'm coming from the, the side that, you know what, they did let them play. They, these officials were there for a reason. They weren't just handpicked. I mean, they. let me rephrase. They were handpicked because of their ability to officiate football at the highest level in the world. And so just to blatantly sit here and say, oh, well, these guys missed that, missed this, that, and the other, and they missed that, and that, and that. Well, to the spectator, yeah, they did. But you know what? We don't know the rule book like they do. We don't know what rule is dependent upon another rule. We don't know the intricacies of how it's written and how to properly have judgment to officiate that sport. And if you do, then please tell me. You know, because if it's anything like the baseball rules, nobody knows the game of baseball. The game of baseball has so many rules, and everything that happens is dictated upon rule. And if this happens in that play, well, you don't apply that part of the rule. You apply this part of the rule. Same thing goes with with football. It's no different. So, again, these guys were there for a reason. Their performance during the season and during the year 
allow them to be there. And you know what? If you want you want to hate on somebody, hate on the NFL. Not the officiating. Hate on the NFL because those are the guys that should be held accountable for putting the officials there in the first place. Well, that's the thing too. Is I was just about to go there. You hit the you hit the nail on the head. You know, I'm, Rams fans petitioned the NFL beforehand to have that crew removed from the from the game. Why the Rams were zero and eight with Bill with Bill Vinovich's crew. That in the, in the Saints game before the same team. Uh, uh, we saw some a really was a kind of a a bad game for the officiating. I'm having trouble getting these words out today, and I would just say that those Rams fans had a point. Why did the NFL assign that crew? Here you go. You it just if you go optics as well, J. Rob. Optics. If you have four SoCal officials on that crew, why would you even assign them that game? If you're worried about the optics of it, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you send them to do the Patriots Chiefs game and send that crew down to do the Saints Rams game? You know, it, again, it, it's unless you're a fly on the wall in the meetings of how they pick guys to go where, then you're, we're all just speculating. All the stories, it's speculative. Nobody knows anything, yeah, and it's just again, it, it's just unfair to sit here and say. Well, this guy did this for that reason, or why is the NFL sending these guys? We, we have the right to question it, but to sit here and make assumptions, which is actually guessing, that's just unfair in general. So that, that and for me, Man, do you think I'm making assumptions? What's that? Do you think I'm making assumptions? I don't think you're. You have the right to make an assumption of one way or the other, but and and a right to to make a judgment on something, but. To the to the root of the story, which is these Southern Cal guys fixed this game, is inaccurate and untrue, and you kind of send it to the jury and say innocent until proven guilty. In my opinion, well, I agree, and that's kind of where I'm going. On. What I'm saying here is that you know the NFL should have been thinking about this before they even assign these teams. There is what I'm saying. Why? The question I'm asking: If you're thinking, if you're worried about image and the image of the integrity of your game. Why would you even assign four SoCal referees to that particular game? Why wouldn't you send the other championship game? It's the same. It's the same point in the playoffs. Does it make sense to me? I, I mean, it's a I, question. I get, that, I get that perspective, and it's fair. But I have a hard time believing that the NFL didn't when they wrote these got these officials' names down on paper to send out to the teams of who's going to be officiating the championship games, and it's going to say where they're from. And the, I mean, when they wrote it out, they saw oh, California, California, California. I, I'm sure that thought crossed they, their mind. But I'm sure it didn't play a role in their decision to put those guys well, there because of their integrity of who they are well, as officials. I was just about to go there. What if it's just the fact that they trust their officials? They do. They just, I mean, it's, it's I mean, the same thing in Major League Baseball, dude. I mean, these guys, the guys that, that are there go through years and years of minor league training and go through situation after situation and are put underneath the microscope, especially now with where technology is. I mean, dude, you got to have a backbone. you got to be professional, and you have to be able to lay the law down when you have to and be respectful to the, the, the peers and, and your whoa, your whoa, other whoa. coworkers. It's, it's, it's a whole different okay, thing. Okay, okay. Then, then I have to ask, how do you explain Joe West in, in Major League Baseball then? Well, he he's going for the record of breaking the most, you know, having the most games, and they're letting him do it, you know, and, that, and that's just the, the way. And then, truth be told, he's actually one of the best ball strike umpires in the game still at his age. 
even despite his behavior in the field? Because you're talking about professionalism now. I'm talking about professionalism, yeah. The guy, he's still one of the best in the game right now at his age when it comes to percentage of getting pitches correct. The little box that you see on the screen watching games is so inaccurate, it, you, don't, you don't have any idea. At first, And I'll be very brief. First, your angle is skewed, and it, the box is not there for when a guy is taking a stride step, meaning he's taking a swing, which is actually where the strike zone yeah, is. Yeah, but I'm not called. questioning that. I'm just questioning the professionalism, his behavior. That's all. I'm, I'm not even uh, questioning well, he's ball a, he's strikes old goat. I mean, he's an old guy. I mean, so he's they're not going to run him out of town. I mean, you ha- to get released as a, as a major league umpire, you really have to mess something up. And and if you want to say, hey, well, where's the integrity of that? Well, it's like, dude, this guy's like 60-plus-year-old. Uh, years old and he's been in the game for so long he's just trying to break a record and they're just going to let him do it and that's all there is to that all right so folks before we get further into our podcast we do want to remind you that we're available anywhere podcasts can be found including spotify soundcloud and spreacher spreacher <laughs> Spreak. i'm a mess tonight i'm a bloody mess spreaker Spreaker, and don't forget to subscribe and leave five-star reviews on itunes it really helps us out and don't forget our other shows in the network rampage radio it's back they're back this week. Also, back. butting heads with Steve and Johnny. So, J-Rob and, and Jay are back this week. Also, want to give a shout-out to one of our sponsors. Most of us are practically addicted to anything Los Angeles Rams. Well, if you want to learn more about the Rams' history with a bit of personal touch, check out Jim Hawk's Hollywood's Team, Grit, Glamour, and the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. The book tells the story of the 1950s Rams through the lens of Jim's dad, John, who was an offensive lineman for the team from 1953 to 1957. Check out his son's story of his father and the team he played for in an era of glitz, glamour, and future Hall of Famers. Read about players like Norm Van Brocklin, Elroy, Crazy Hirsch, Tom Fears, and Les Richter in this story spent the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. You can find Hawk's book online at HollywoodsTeam.com and on Twitter at HollywoodsTeam. It's available both in hardback and electronic form at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can also find Team through various other booksellers on the internet. Everyone, I've read this book from cover to cover. It's worth every penny for all the Rams fans out there. It's also a great story about a person's father and the legacy he left behind. Again, folks, trust to check it out. It's always seen great glamour in the 1950s Los Angeles Rams by Jim Hawk. It's well worth your time. All right, so the second thing I want to talk to you about. This is, this is going to take a little bit of, of your St. Louis experience. If you, uh, you guys all know, uh, Jay Robbins from the air originally. And, you know, the breakup between St. Louis and the Rams – um, it was harsh. It was a hard experience for um, for many people. You know, this is the second time the St. Louis has lost a team. And um, unfortunately, the moment the Rams got the Super Bowl, we started seeing articles like from what Dan Wetzel wrote about how St. Louis is now cheering for the Patriots and how bittersweet it is at the trip the Patriots against the Rams. And, and we're seeing several St. Louis, um, I, I hate to say it, trolls, coming over to our pages on our Twitter page and, and talking trash about the Rams, calling Stan Kroenke out and talking about how they're cheering for the Patriots and so on and so forth. And I, I got to tell you, honestly, it's that narrative also being seen on on national news, on Yahoo Sports, is, is bothering me a little bit. I'll tell you why. I can understand St. Louis fans having an issue with Kroenke. It was, a, it was an ugly breakup. It was an ugly breakup. What I don't understand right now is a lot of these players on the Rams, the current roster played St. Louis. Where was Aaron Donald drafted? Where Where's the team at in St. Louis? The team was uh, Michael Brockers, St. Louis. Todd Gurley was drafted while in St. Louis. 
And I got to be honest, dude, it's, it's really starting to, to bother me to hear some of these fans saying they're cheering against these very same players that just a couple of years ago they were cheering for. And they're wearing the same uniform. And a lot of these same players wearing that same uniform were heavily involved in the St. Louis community. What many people don't realize is this Rams franchise, whether they're in St. Louis or in Los Angeles, they have always, always been involved in the community. When Joplin was hit with a tornado, the Rams were one of the first organizations there helping out. They're always, they were always one of the organizations deep, knee-deep in, in inner-city work in St. Louis, they just always been involved. And so it's kind of bothered me. I guess I'm taking it a little personal. I, I covered this team when they were in St. Louis for Yahoo Sports. I started Rams Talk when we were in St. Louis. Um, I was called many things. I was, uh, I was uh, what's it called, um, harassed by a few St. Louis fans who did not like my take on it, which was just basically a business-like take on it. Um, and now it's starting to rear its head again in the sleep before the Super Bowl. So with all that in mind, just as a guy who, you, you're from St. Louis, you've stuck with the team, you you do one of our podcasts here, you guys joined our team, um, you're a proud, proud Rams fan. You just know where you're going, we are not wearing Rams colors <laughs> unless you're at work. Um, and how are you feeling, you know, seeing some of that stuff on social media and hearing from some of the folks out in St. Louis? Well, I'm going to just make a quick clarification because you didn't know this, but I lived in St. Louis for the past nine years, and so um, and I became a fan. I'm actually from Tallahassee, Florida, and so being a Southern boy going to St. Louis, that was a change in general. Uh, but I became a fan in 2006 because of Steven Jackson and because of fantasy football because I had that guy on my team. And watching him run the ball, I was sold. I wasn't even a fan of the NFL until that guy, I saw him run the football. So uh, that's a quick back, back story there. Um, I decided – that when the Rams are going to move, it took me about a day to decide whether or not I was going to stick with the team or not. And it was foolish of me for to even contemplate it because at the bottom, you know, at the base of this thing is one question. Did you fall in love with the team or did you fall in love with the owner? That's the question. And for me, I fell in love with the team. I fell in love with how you know, again, Steven ran the ball. I fell in love with how, you know, the offense line was blocking and stuff like that, which wasn't very well even then. But the players, I fell in love with the team. And, you know, I was invested. I was on the post-dispatch and their forums, like, all the time, like I am on Rams On Demand now and things like that. And what can I do to change the mind of a billionaire who wants to pick up a team and move to a different location to make even more money? Like, what can I do about that? So why should I be disloyal after all the sacrifice of time, you know, laying, late, laying in bed late at night on these forums and typing to people and arguing people and all these things and now even doing a podcast? Like, what? Why, why should I quit following the team? Like, what can I do about this owner? So I understand that people who are from and have lived all their lives in St. Louis and watched this team when they first arrived, I can understand why they're upset. You have every reason to be upset. But to go and call people names and, and to make it personal, and, and I mean, that's just, that just shows your character. And, and it's not really called for because, again, for one, it's a game. And these guys are paid to entertain us. And if you don't want to be a part of 
whatever team it is and whatever professional sport, then that's, that's your prerogative. But that doesn't mean that you go and start bashing other fans who spend a lot of time and hours and even money, like buying jerseys and merchandise and tickets, you know, to go to games, you know, that doesn't give you the right to, to belittle these people because we love our team. And so like you, I can understand why you're frustrated about it. I can understand why you're upset that people are, are calling you names, you know, in the past and, uh, and, and I would even listen to Fred Rogan. You know, the day after I decided to stay with the team, which was the day after that he said that they were moving, I started listening to LA Sports because they started talking about the Rams. And uh, it's because I love the team. And so, at the end of the day, man, it's not right for people to again belittle and to bash and to and to hate on people just because you know they're LA fans. Or, but there's few St. Louis fans, but the ones that are there, I mean, you see their true colors. They love the team just like you mm-hmm. and just like me. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we need to be fair there too. There are several uh, St. Louis fans stuck with the team, and and some even fly out to to the games out in Los Angeles and make absolutely. Sport. And yeah, you know, and, and there were some also who the moment the team decided to move, and and then or talk about guys who were quote unquote media, and I, I put that heavily in quotes because they weren't they weren't really media guys to me. They were cheerleaders. They were civic cheerleaders. Just, they cared about the city of St. Louis, and it really wasn't about the team at all. It was all about the city pride. And right away, the moment that team is gone, they're saying, well, I hope the Rams go 0-16. Dude, those are the same human beings you were cheering for a day ago. A day ago. The same human beings who were heavily involved in your community and contributing to your community and making your city a better place. And that, I think, is what bothers me right now as we get close to this this big game this this huge super bowl the first time the Rams have been in the super bowl since 2000 uh 2002 the 2001 season 2002 that here we have um you know we're seeing aaron donald and and these guys who gay to the city of st louis in the area being trashed for those same people it's not their fault and i'm not even gonna fault Kronky. Kronky made a business decision too by the way you know That's he right. made he made a business decision for what's best for his franchise, and we can't argue the numbers. I mean, it is what it is. Let, let me just say this real quick, and you know this of all people. The, the city of St. Louis presented a very, very strong plan to keep the team in St. Louis. They presented a very strong plan. It had a ton of support when the city had its meetings, and there was a ton of people that showed up. And, and it, it felt like, man, this team actually might stay here. But, you know, the, at the end of the day, man, again, Kroenke has any and every pull that he needs to take a team and move them for money because it's all about money. And that's what he did. Well, well, that is. It's a business. No matter how you frame it, you have a business. You have, If you own a business – your job is not to make everybody happy. Your job is to to make money, and people can falter for that. But you know what? Every team in the NFL is trying to make some money. But also, too, that St. Louis thing. What we realize, what people forget about that St. Louis plan was when the teams went to arbitration and the Rams presented their view of what the dome's gonna, dome should be. It was a a pie the sky view. It needed to have, I think it was, I think it was seven hundred and fifty million dollars estimated in renovations. Yes, that, that that's what he viewed because what he was looking for is wherever he was going to be, he wanted to be able to host Super Bowls. He want in the stadium plan, the city pre, uh, presented, which was a fine plan by the way, but it wasn't ever going to host a Super Bowl. It didn't even have the seat capacity for it, and so right away the flaws were there in their plan, but they couldn't afford anything more than that. Um, the fall in the, the lease itself was a poison pill, and that's not Kroenke's fault. 
That's John Shaw inserting that poison fill in 1995. So you want to blame somebody, blame the dude who helped bring the team to St. Louis to begin with, John Shaw. And you know what? I hate to say it. Blame Georgia. Blame Mm -hmm. Georgia. But also they need to blame the city too. In 2004, there were already whispers of the team being uh, moving out of there. Um, the lease, remember, required that the stadium be the top quarter of the league. Um, Georgia waived it for that first 10-year stretch. But at that point, the city should have known, listen, we need to start preparing for this. We need to start putting things together. we got 10 years. We need to, we need to figure this out. And it didn't happen. It's just, it yeah. didn't happen. You know, you, you say blame people and – we know humans we're, we're going to find places to blame and make judgments about people and situations and circumstances no matter how they come in life whether it's sports or finances or family members or relationships there's always going to be blame on something some way somehow but at the end of the day man there's really no one to blame people wanted to move people had the, the jurisdiction and the financial backing to make moves to make money as you said it's a business decision and it was when Georgia left and because there was some homerism in her part coming back here you know or, or to St. Louis so that definitely played a role but at the you know still it's it's about what they could and wanted to do because they had the power to do it and that well, yeah, is and, all and there the- is to it I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying, if, you, if there is anybody you're going to blame, you can blame those people too. If you want to blame somebody, fine, you can blame Kroenke, but you can blame everybody else involved too. Just don't don't point one finger. And I mean, if you're going to blame anybody, but the fact of the matters it happened, and you know, also, you're, I, I sense a lot of this is, you know, people are just hurt. You know, these Rams fans, St. Louis, are hurt, and they feel awful about it. And I can understand that. And but don't forget the people in L.A. How do you think they felt back in 1999 when Georgia Farnier is holding that trophy and saying, you know, this. Um, this Super Bowl win, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, only justifies the Rams moving to St. Louis. How did those L.A. fans felt? Mm-hmm. Just as bad. So perspective is all, is all I'm saying. Perspective. Yep. And you're going to feel those feelings, man. I mean, it's just like when you lose a best friend who picks up and moves away from, you know, when you were in grade school. Everyone's mm-hmm. had a friend that's moved away. It's the same type of feeling. And But you didn't go out and start hating on the other kids or hating on his other buddies who are close to him, too, you know, just because he moved away. It's just it doesn't make sense to to go ahead and, and take it another step further and start you know, again, bashing and belittling and, and causing hate, or as a lot of people call it, as you said, the term trolling on forums and things <laughs> like that. That's just, that, again, that just kind of shows your character and how mature you are as a person when, again, this is about a game and about being entertained. So here's the thing, too, is I guess as we, as we close up this conversation and we, we, and we get to the main crux of, of today's show, um, folks, if you are out in St. Louis, man, I'm sorry you lost your team. I'm sorry, you know that that meant, I know it meant a lot to you. It meant a lot to me. Um, when me the, too. When the, team, when the team left LA, and then it meant a lot to me when the team went back to LA. It's, I've you know I've, I've been following this team for an awful long time. Um, I know it's going to hurt seeing those players you cheered for go out there wearing um, those colors and not it doesn't say St. Louis next to the name. It says Los Angeles. But these still are guys who contributed to your community. They are still people who gave. Um, who bled in the field for you to represent your city. And I would ask you to at least take that into consideration as you, uh, as you move towards this game. Yep. And you know what? If you, if you consider you know, the Patriots as your team to, to pull for against the Rams and bring it on, if you want to go ahead and 
you know, root against us, then that again, that's your prerogative, and it ain't no one gonna badmouth you for doing what you choose to do. But if you're gonna do it, do it because we need all we we want it all, man. Because we gonna take them down. That's all there is to it. So be butt hurt. <laughs> be butt hurt. <laughs> all right. So folks, we're getting near the end here. Um, we do want to take some time out to thank our other sponsor, Golden Ram Barbershop. If you're looking to support one of your own in the Orange County area and let the or- the old school, I'm talking the old school barbershop experience, check out the Golden Ram Barbershop, 13755 Golden West Street in Westminster, California, 92683. Sal Martinez opened up his shop as a shrine to the Rams on the day the team left for St. Louis and has kept the line on ever since. He's by appointment only, so give him a call at 714-894-7267 or Rams. Use the promo code RAMSTALK so he knows we sent you to get a discount on an already affordable haircut. The Gold Ram Barbershop is open Monday through Friday, 8 and 6 p.m. and Saturday, 7 and 4 p.m. One more time, give Sal a call at 714-894-7267. Folks, a visit to his shop is worth it just to enjoy all the Rams and out there. Saul, ah, Saul, man, thinking, it's, it's Sunday, I'm thinking of the Bible. This, Sal also <laughs> provides the old school barbershop experience and talking Rams football and more. I mean, I'm telling you, dude, I don't know what it is. I am off my game tonight. That's all right. Um, but, man, listen, dude, listen. You just talked about Sal. He, he, oh, he left his shop open and left all the memorabilia and everything up there on his walls when they left town. And you talk about, you know, which he saw game after game after game and had conversations with those guys that he cut their hair and they talked about Rams for years and years and years. And then they up and leave and he kept it going like that's the same thing that I did when I was in St. Louis. And it just goes to show you that people that truly care about the team, love the team and are not going to turn their back just because they up and move on something they can't control. Props to you, Sal. Props to you. There you go. All right, folks. And before we get to our interview here, we do also want to tell you that, hey, it's also time for us to renew our contracts. So if you are interested in sponsoring us and advertising with us, hey, check uh, check us out. Ramstop1945 at gmail.com. Uh, send us an email. We'll send you a media kit, let you know all about us. You can also leave us a voicemail at 657-666-5453. So this leads us to the crux of our show tonight. This is Matt Chatham. Again, he is from the Athletic Boston, also works at Nesson, and runs the Real Thing Podcast, uh, Patriots Podcast. Does, does an excellent job. Excellent job. Check it out. All right, folks. I am here with Matt Chatham, former New England Patriots linebacker and host of the Real Thing Patriots Podcast. You can also find him on Nesson and the Athletic Boston. <laughs> Matt, you're a busy guy. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. How are you? You're wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, well, thanks for taking time to talk with us. I know, I know how busy it is right before Super Bowl, <laughs> and immediately though, I do want to address the white elephant in the room immediately because at least for Rams fans, it is white. What the heck? How dare you steal our thunder in Super Bowl Thirty Six? Gosh, <laughs> um, can you take it? Can you take us through that game? That game though, what made it special for you? Well, I mean, I have a, a, a quick little backstory there just because I, I was an undrafted free agent. Charlie Army back in the day in the St. Louis days had brought me in. Um, I was there in 99. I had a, a really, I guess, sort of bizarre start to my to my career, um, and I'm, I'm fully to blame for that. You know, I was an undrafted guy, did well in camp, and uh, we'll all remember the old uh, – 
the old situation with Leonard Little and, you know, some of the off-field stuff that he was dealing with at the time. And uh, when the news of that came down, um, I, I, you know, as a drafted guy, you kind of have some choices are where you're going to go. And my offers were from St. Louis, Cleveland, and Indy. And mm-hmm. when Leonard came back, I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a stud. He's a great guy and, you know, a, a great player. Uh, and when he returned back to my position, my, my training camp went cold. I just stood there for the next couple of weeks and, you know, you, you feel yourself falling down a depth chart and you get concerned about making a team. So I had actually gone back in and talked to Coach Vermeil and, uh, and Charlie and said, you know what, uh, if I'm just going to be released and put on a practice squad or something, let me go. And, uh, you know, let me try to fight for roster spot somewhere else. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to retain rights, and I completely get that. It was a little petulant on my part probably at the time. But So I actually had contacted my school, the University of South Dakota, and uh, I had a full ride, obviously, in college, and I was worried about being able to finish school uh, and losing that scholarship. So I said, you know what, I don't want to be on a practice squad like an idiot, not knowing exactly what that meant at the time. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I, I went back to college. So I went back to school and finished, and they put me on a reserve list and uh obviously we all know what happened in st louis lore in that 1999 year um so later in that season we we kept in contact i'm finishing up school um and a pre-law degree i was going to maybe go to law school things like that and uh, you know, I still had the itch. Of course, I still wanted to play, and they weren't willing to release me. So, uh, you know, I, I talked to Charlie, and he said, if you could really fully commit to this and get back into it, we'd love to have you. Uh, so I went back to camp with those guys in 2000 and uh, ended up being, you know, a final cuts kind of situation. Uh, and they had intended to put me on practice squad, um, at, you know, but that afternoon I got claimed off waivers by the Rams, or excuse me, by the by the Patriots, where at that time I was living in her city, and I, I didn't even know where New England was. <laughs> so so I was gone. And, you know, and then the rest of the next six years I'm in New England and the next few after that with New York. But it, it was always special for me. Uh, and I said that to Coach Ramil. I You know, he, he came, I believe it was in that 01 season, obviously when we had beaten, uh, or excuse me, when the, the Rams had come to Foxborough, Foxborough Stadium, and beat us in that close game in the regular season. Coach Ramil walked. Walked across the stretch lines, came over to me, gave me a big hug in pregame, uh, and just said, you know, I'm proud of you. As an undrafted guy, you've really made a mark, and you're making a roster. I, he regrets it. It didn't work out with him. It was just a, a day. I was probably number 54. <laughs> you know? So I just always felt like he was, it was really classy of him and uh, uh, still had friends back in St. Louis, but it just didn't work out there. But it obviously did mean a lot to me to get to play against those particular guys and and uh, you know, how much respect I had for you know, the guys like Kurt Warner and Isaac Bruce and, uh, you know, all up and down that roster. Adam Timmerman's an Iowa guy uh, from near where I live. And, you know, just to get in to compete against those guys and get that victory, greatest show on turf, all that stuff. We knew how good they were. So meeting them meant a lot. So, I mean, I guess it had to be a little bittersweet, that game itself, playing in the Super Bowl against those guys. And But how did you stop? How did the Patriots stop one of the best offenses in recent NFL history? Well, one of the things that I think gets lost is sort of in history, and obviously this is a question I get a lot. We talk about this a lot. They were one of the greatest offenses in NFL history, but if you look at the core of that defense for the Patriots in 01 and look forward to the uh, just two years later, we, we change out a couple pieces, uh, uh, bring in uh, Ty Warren from te- Texas A&M uh, as a defensive end in the first round, uh, add maybe a third corner kind of situation. Lawyer Malloy, it was exceptional for us, obviously, but he's gone and Rodney Harrison's in. 
But by and large, the core of that defense stays the same. Roman Pfeiffer, old Ram, uh, you know, and and uh, Teddy Bruschi and Mike Rabel and Willie McGinnis and, and Richard Seymour and Ty Law and Otis Smith and on and on. That was – I don't think we realized it at that point, but when you look at the core of that group, even later in 03, uh, whatever it was, we'd, we'd uh, not allowed a touchdown in some crazy – I don't remember the exact stat. Something like no touchdown allowed in like 12 of the 16 games or something. Mm-hmm. But – the, the idea here is, yes, clearly the world knew because of the Super Bowl run before that how good that Rams offense was, but that was one of the best defenses also of at least that decade. So the idea that that group stopped him, I think in retrospect, isn't so hard to believe. Uh, that was a tough matchup for the Rams as much as it was for us. So uh, it would have been cool maybe if, if groups, both groups were intact, if they, they, they played again. But the notion that that defense would have been a two-point underdog to that group doesn't make a lot of sense. I think a lot of that was driven by the uncertainty with our offensive group as much as anything. I mean, the, the 14 point, the two touchdown favor coming into the game and um, just uh, just the way the matches were for us, where we were looking at it was nobody could really stop that offense all year. And all of a sudden, you know, there were some signs of it. The, the Patriots gave the Rams a heck of a game during that year, 24 17 at Foxborough. And, but it was just like, well, on turf, they're not going to stop. No, no. But then it does happen. And years later, we hear the rumors about the Patriots possibly spying on the Rams and the walkthrough and videotaping. And most folks, you know, can handle a loss with dignity. But with that in the back of, of many diehards' minds, is there anything you can tell the folks in our side about that game that can make the loss a little easier to digest? It didn't happen. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Well, that's that. fair enough. <laughs> I mean, honestly, honestly, that is it. And, and one of the things that I think is funniest, if you do go back and, and watch it, and obviously we reviewed that game over and over again, we're not playing some elaborate call. We're not making checks to something in view of some new information we had or something stupid like that. It's literally just the coverage as we ran. I think one of the things we often talk about with the Patriots is sort of having some sort of idea or concept or something that's uh, that's transitive. And what I mean by that is simply, you know, it's not some magic coverage call or some magic check that we would have uh, because of something that would have been seen in the walkthrough, which, again, the notion of that is ridiculous from any football perspective. And a lot of those guys that I that I have a lot of respect for, man, I just wish they would let it go because, A, it didn't happen, and, B, we could have attended your walkthrough and it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, that has nothing to do with, with calls in the moment and execution. It's not knowing your play. By that time of a game, you know, formation tendencies, all that stuff's on tape. It's it's That stuff's silly. But the point of the transitive ideas really what you don't necessarily have uh you know some magic game plan where we always play cover two and four and we're going to play one and do it this way and that's what's going to beat you it's not that it's the concept that can travel from each of the coverages from each of the fronts and us it was really just the, the idea of being physical with every guy on the field you know playing right up against the edge of the rules uh, at that time you know illegal contact wasn't this tight you know in the five and a half mm-hmm. yard line it was you can't grab and we obviously got one called back on that when Willie tackled the tackle Marshall but uh, by and large you were allowed to do more than and I'm glad I mean I think it makes for a more competitive situation now this you know with the Colts winding later in the middle of the decade for for illegal contact we can't touch each other you just sort of jog through the secondary we, I, I don't think that's as as pure a form of the game but what we did back then that I think was new was to sort of dismiss this idea that hey I'm a defensive end I just rush 
And, and you see that over and over with Kurt. Mm-hmm. He's a lot like Tom in that he gets rid of the ball so quickly. So what sense is it to rush uh, for two and a half seconds, never affect the play? Might as well, might as well jam Marshall. Might as well jam Ike. Might as well uh, jam uh, Ricky if you can get a hand on him. Might as well, you know, might as well go after Tory and just route disrupt. It was a timing offense, so it's not – a magic call. It's not a magic defense. It's not a magic front. It's just making sure that he's got to go two and three and four checks in on each play. And that's hard on anyone. And it's not something you could find a lot on tape uh, that anyone had done. And clearly it's, I, I hate it to this day that we've got that, that idiot reporter here uh, that used to work for the Herald that wrote that stuff. And it, it just never happened. So I, I wish a lot of my friends knew that and understood that, you know, get get read up on what actually happened, what didn't, and uh, know that that wasn't a part of it. It was a hard-fought game between two good teams. I think we were a little underrated at the time, but people now in, in, in memoriam understand a little more what we were all about. So you just mentioned a, a, a key thing there and said James the line. The rest, that's really how the Rams kind of shut down the Saints middle of third quarter last week was they started jamming Kamara at the line. And so I understand completely what you're talking about in disrupting routes. But with the rule changes that you're talking about, if the, yeah. and then this is hypotheticals now, if yeah. those two teams play again in today's age, what do you think the result would be? Well, uh, if those two teams play, you know, at that level of, uh, well, I guess I'd have to go back and watch and say, hey, it would be, a, it might, it might be an interesting exercise to go back and say, okay, would this have been flagged? Would that have been flagged? Mm-hmm. Would that have been touched? Because you, you know, you may find a player two or three or five or whatever that that would have been. But ultimately, you got to adjust. And, and I, I don't know. That's a, it's a good question, especially considering, I think the biggest. Uh, sort of, yeah, I guess, handicap that we would have had at that moment is how inexperienced that group was on the offensive side. Brady did, you know, awesome on the two-minute drive at the end of the game, awesome on the one touchdown drive they had, but we were a very conservative group at the time, ran the ball really well. Uh, Antoine did have a big day that day. Offensive line was new to one another, but that that configuration of players goes through our three out of four run uh, by and large. Uh, so I, I think that we would clearly have to adjust on both sides. But I think, again, the reason you do those things is because of the rules at the time. And uh, it was something that, you know, when you're watching film, when you're, you're, you're trying to put together a game plan and you're you're watching Ike and, and Tori just sprint off the line untouchable, that's going to be easy for anyone. And I think even in today's rules, and you can look at the Patriots game a week ago. I know that's what the Rams players will be looking at now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they jam still. I mean, so I, I don't think it's so much as if, well, the, the old 01 game plan wouldn't work. You just have to be more stringent on letting go or letting go or just stopping the jam at five. That's, that's the biggest thing. But the bigger issue is not so much on the ball guys jamming. It's, it's the willingness in the, within the scheme to jam with the guy who's then rushing, or the jam with a guy that becomes his own player. The hard part is when they're that good. The Tories, the, you know, the Ricky Proles of those days, and Ike is, is as amazing as he was, and Marshall. I mean, he, he, he slips anyone. The tough part is if you believe that you can jam the guy jam with the guy who also has to cover. That doesn't work. That's very, very difficult. I, if, as a linebacker, I know that. If I, you know, I had to cover Marshall just in the practice stuff, uh, those, those couple camps that I was there. And if you get too physical with them, yeah, you can knock him down one out of five times maybe. But if he slips you, and then he's going to go 80 yards. So yeah. you want you want to make sure that the guy that's jamming uh, can be as aggressive as he's as, as he's as he wants to be, because he knows that if he oversells it, he's covered by something. The guy who's actually covering. That's generally where the concept works best. Okay. Well, moving to now. Okay. Um, the Patriots. 
in the national media anyways, a lot of attention was taken to some of the issues they had this year. I don't see it that way. I see it as, you know, every team has their struggles over a 16-game schedule. But what did the Patriots do to address some of their weaknesses uh, as they got into the playoffs and not into the Super Bowl? Well, uh, some of the things that I'll be watching, and, and I well, we'll be covering this throughout the weeks, and we really don't know where this is going to go, but defensively the Patriots really struggled in some of their worst performances uh, stopping the run game. And, and, you know, it was the, the Steelers game was one of them, but the Steelers sort of bailed the Patriots out, uh, you know, ends up in a really close game. The score total's low, but defensively, at least for the Pats, uh, they were struggling with, you know, five-yard chunks on first down kind of stuff. And it was mostly sub-running, but when I say they bailed them out, they ended up in four and five wide receiver stuff throughout the day, so you don't really, you know, get to hammer away at that that weakness at the time. Detroit ran the ball very effectively. Uh, there was a lot of action with the backs and the Jack. Jaguars lost early in the year, and the Patriots really struggled to stop the run against Tennessee. So those are sort of, you know, in a pocket, some of the biggest issues that, you know, when you're having that problem sort of opens up stuff on the back end from it. Um, but they've they've really addressed that. The last six weeks has been really good football. Um, you can look here to the, the Chiefs where I think there was a decent amount of fear that Damian Williams could go off, uh, you know, uh, in part because – I think I, we have a lot of respect for that guy. When he was in Miami, he's just a really hard charging dude. He's a name that a lot of people around the league don't don't know much. But uh, his style, that fall forward style, that get hit at two but still end up with five, uh, that's a, that is a test that they hadn't yet seen. They they stopped the Bills, they stopped the Jets late, but both those guys had struggled to run the football. Then you run into the then you run into the Chargers, and they got down so quickly they didn't really get into sort of the game plan where you could have uh, Ingram, uh, excuse me, Melvin Gordon, uh, you know, getting high touches and and in, including the back with Eckler and things like that. So the test of the backs and the run game stopped. It wasn't seen there, but then they really answered the bell against the Chiefs. So I know that obviously Jared Goff is under center more than any quarterback in the league. I love that. Uh, I love that approach uh, personally. It's Brady, I believe, was third. So both of their offenses, I think, are very comparable, at least in that. There's a lot of the game plan motion stuff with the Jets stuff, but they both rely really heavily on the run games, the Rams without a fullback, the Patriots with. So I think that'll be sort of the interesting test, a, a, a one-back kind of thing, whether it's more CJ or whether it's more – more girly, but uh, they, that was the area that had been a weakness that got addressed. And all of a sudden, when you tighten up that element and make the third and third and whatever's be more uncomfortable, it's a whole different team. So you feel you feel pretty confident that those issues are are at least fairly well solved now. I don't know about solved, but I, I think they've you know, and this is sort of an any given Sunday kind of thing. And it's an mm-hmm. any given Sunday league. I think you would look to a, a year ago, and they struggled extreme. They had an extreme problem with that against Philly, and part of that I think can be addressed. And I, in my view, you know, the Malcolm Butler thing became the story of a year ago. Uh, independent of that, they rushed for 150, 67. I don't even recall the number, but it was ridiculous. The yards per carry was terrible, uh, and they tried to play a lot of just four man front sub stuff where you know your your seventh or in the box, your late guy that would normally be there that was coming from depth. They tried to stop the run with six, and they got gashed. And that sort of changes, uh, I guess, the formula of what you might expect yeah. is going to happen in a game. Uh, so the point is, if, if you make a scheme choice and – 
and you you can see that to the Rams, you're in trouble, in my view, much like the way that the game went in Philly a year ago. So I think it I think it goes run first and then back. And and what the the one thing that the Patriots have that I think it's a little undersold publicly is is really the strength of their secondary. I think it's the strongest group on the team, the quarterback obviously. Uh, but Stephon Gilmore is tremendous. Uh, it'll be fun watching him and Brandon. You know, obviously Brandon was here a year ago, battle some if that ends up being the matchup. But Robert Woods is a guy we know very well from the Buffalo days, and Reynolds is an up and coming guy uh, looks very talented uh, and the tight ends are, are are capable as well aren't used as much but it's a it's a it's a pretty cool group that they've got over there but the Patriots uh depth of their secondary from John Jones uh to see to JC Jackson this guy that comes out of nowhere uh I call the I call the games in the preseason as uh, as the color guy for the radio broadcast for the team and JC Jackson that just really sort of rose quickly, was playmaker throughout training camp, worked his way onto the roster, uh, wasn't used much the first half of the season, but he's been been a star for them now. And you have a veteran and, and, and Jason McCourty who's an additional piece, but they're really strong, fifth to even sixth defensive back on the back end, and that makes that helps them in, in games like this where, where the other offense has a lot of capable people that, that could be targets. Now you just mentioned Brandon Cooks. I was actually going there next. He didn't work out for the Patriots. Why? Why didn't he work out for them? I think he did. I think they were really pleased with what they got and, and, and they liked him quite a bit and he did a lot for them. I think, you know, getting hurt in the Super Bowl, you can't control that. You know, he mm-hmm. had an head injury in that game and, and that's unfortunate, but I think it became about cost. They, they simply weren't going to pay that number to that guy. They had attempted and there, I believe the reports were that they had been offers made, but they were just so far away from another, each one another. It was never going to go that way. So it wasn't a matter of not appreciating Brandon. I think any more than, than it was for the Saints. The Saints, you know, Sean spoke highly of Brandon. I think everyone here in New England speaks highly of him as well. But there is a price, and at that price, they weren't willing to go there. So they got a lot back in return, and Brandon went out and had another productive year like you would expect that he would. And I think both parties are probably pretty pleased. Yeah, I guess so what it comes down to is the Rams are willing to pay him the money, and the Patriots had other priorities. Yeah, I, I think in part they're they're sort of a spread the wealth kind of team. Uh, mm-hmm. If you you start to get into the cap numbers that that Brandon was going to pull, uh, it, it doesn't make sense for a guy that might be your third option on the offense. And understanding Julian was coming back, Gronk at least at the time when they're making these decisions is is still you know the top target of the offense. It's not going to be a wide receiver, and you know they're they made this, they've got a lot of uh, not necessarily money but. Capital, I guess, uh, draft capital invested in the backs group, comparable to comparable to the Rams, not identical. Obviously, mm-hmm. Gurley was a real, real high pick, but they still do have a first round draft pick there now. They made the decision to go get that. James White is is a really underappreciated star in this league. But when you get into an offense like that, where you know, and Chris Hogan's a big part of what they do. They've got Philip Dorsett on the roster as a former first rounder. It's just, it's a spread the wealth offense. I just don't think they're ever going to be in a situation unless it had been for Gronk, you know, when he was still, you know, getting a thousand yard seasons and catching the ball that way, where they were ever going to concentrate any amount of money, a big, big contract to any wide receiver, Brandon or otherwise. Okay. So you have, you know, the Patriots do go out there and get Josh Gordon. It doesn't work out because Josh Gordon is well, Josh Gordon. And, um, you, you trade away Cooks. What is the main setup now for the Patriots passing game? And by the way, is, is Gordon done in New England, do you think? It, you know what? I, they're going to they're gonna stick with him. I think his relationship here with the people is tremendous. They love him. He still shows up in the locker room. He's still, well, I don't know if that's true of it. He shows up with the, the social posts and things like that mm-hmm. and, and words of sort of encouragement. Um, but I, I think the bigger issue 
with Josh is that, you know, it wasn't addressing some problem they had necessarily at the time. Julian was obviously a question mark because he was serving his suspension, so they didn't have him for those first four weeks. In the absence of Jules and no running game of the first month, uh, and that that was the other biggest thing, uh, you know, as, as Rams get fans get up to speed on this, of what had happened with this particular Patriots team, you know, they, they didn't have – uh, uh, their Sony Michelle, their their top back, didn't really have a training camp with the team, and uh, kind of just arrived off the PUP thing in regular season. So you take a, a young back, even though he's a talented one or a first rounder, and you take away his camp. Uh, you know, it, it was going to be a while till he even knew. Well, till they trust him enough to throw him into a pass protection kind of situation as a back or pass catching portion out in the route occasionally, or even just understanding run schemes and where you fit. He was a young guy, so in the absence of a running game. And your your best your your nails wide receiver and Julian out and sort of unknown what was going to come back because you're coming back from an ACL uh, and Josh Gordon fell from the sky into the lap you know they gave away virtually nothing to get him it's a risk worth taking he did a great job but is here he did have a fall back into the problem that he has but I think they by and large look at it it was is really win win for both parties if he's going to be going through this problem in his life this is as good a place to be doing it you get the support um, will the league allow him back. Now, I think that's probably your biggest hang-up, less so with the team here or the people, and more so with if you've been on the commissioner's exempt uh, you know, list many, many times. Uh-huh. And, and that, that uh, I don't know. It'd be precedent-setting. Uh, obviously, my hope is different. I, it, weed is legal here. I would love to, in, in the state of Massachusetts <laughs> anyway, I would love for them to walk away from that policy, and that's more just as a former player thing. You know, The idea that there are guys that are losing careers over that is, is to me completely nonsensical. If you're in the NBA right now, there had been no interruption in your career whatsoever. Gotcha. Um, in terms of you, you've talked about some the things I kind of view as strengths. They the, the the Patriots they spread the ball around. You have a couple of really good guys running the football right now. What are some of the weaknesses that you see in the Patriots offense as it stands? Oh, it's interesting. So I, I guess I don't know if I would call this a weakness, but I would say it was sort of a. It's hard to, you know, go down the list and say, here's the weakness of a team that scored 41 and 38 and, you know, whatever it was in the last couple of weeks. They're, they're playing as good offense as anyone in football right now. Uh, and that, that to me, so any weakness that I would touch on would probably more, and I'll do it, would be more stuff they struggled with, but that aren't now. But, you know, you can never, you never know if something like that might, might show back up. Now, one thing that, you know, if you were to wind this back to the Steelers game would be an example. Uh, in days where they trail or in days where the other side isn't getting stops. And that was like a real low possession game. And I know it's something that, that the Rams try to, you know, it's, it's a big part of having golf under center. It's a big part of running the football as well as they do as well. You don't want to get into a situation where both offenses are seeing the ball 13, 14, 15 times. So I think in those kind of scenarios what happened, if you can clock control, which is going to sound weird with this dynamic as the Rams offense is, but if you got into a situation like that where you're running off the kinds of drives the Patriots have been doing to other people, you know, seven, eight, nine-minute drives that end on the other end with seven points. Now, that could potentially pressure the Patriots out of their run-first stuff. They'd love to be out in front of you. They'd love to have 21 personnel, the two backs, the tight end, get out and just wear you down and, uh, you know, do it that way. Now, clearly the Rams have a little bit different makeup than most because their two-star players are at the tackle positions. So, you know, that, that might push the running game to the edge. How do, how do they hold up with that? We don't know. But maybe because of the Rams' makeup, uh, you know, it, 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 it puts a little more stress on them if they have to catch up by down a score or, or 10 or whatever it may be and get into the spread stuff. If we're talking November, we're talking – 
Uh, Mid-December, it's tough calls. In the in the in the Steelers game, they didn't. In the Dolphins game, yes, it was a loss, but they scored 38 or whatever it was, and a high 30 number, and throw for almost 400 and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so they proved that they could spread it out and go to the old stuff, but they just haven't had to do much of it this year. There hasn't been a lot of the, hey, four wide receivers on the field, Tom and Gunn, uh, let's forget about the running game for a while. That would probably be, you know, ideally if you're on the other side, you're trying to press them into that situation. But I still would argue that the Patriots' depth is, is really good at wide receiver. I know there's not a lot of, a lot of uh, universal respect out there for the group, but Phil Dorsett has shown over and over again, he may not be getting 10 targets, but he can get open, and when Tom targeted, good things generally happen. And oddly enough for the Patriots this past week, uh, Chris Hogan's had a relatively quiet day, a quiet year as far as production, albeit, although it's in you know, relatively the same league as where he's been in years before. He did... You know, it, it, he hadn't had the kind of game where he would be targeted, especially in crucial situations, over and over and over again. And he was on the two-minute drive, and he was in the overtime drive. So knowing that Tom is willing to turn back to him as well, now you're looking at a three- and four-wide receiver group with Gronk, who's now catching balls as well. I don't see a ton of weaknesses there, quite frankly, in the offense. And, and I look back at the Rams, and I think the same way. It's not as if there's a weakness there. It's not as if some problem that they have. They're both pretty good. It's just going to be who can win a possession or two more than the other. So wait, wait, do you think this game becomes a shootout? It's an interesting idea. Uh, well, let's put it this way. It, it wasn't with the Saints necessarily, and I think that bears a little more study. You know, and I'm, I, I, I think I told you this when I agreed to come on. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I haven't looked really hard. I mean, other than, honestly, I, I watch football a lot like a lot of fans do. Uh, when it's not a, a team that the Patriots are going to play, I watch them from fantasy standpoint. I watch sure. it just as an entertainment thing, and I've been entertained watching the six or seven or whatever games of the Rams that I've been able to catch this year. But it, it, there would be a curiosity to me what, what that – what that uh, Saints game plan was and how you slow them. You never stop them. It's just like the Chiefs. You're not going to stop them. You slow them. you got to win a possession or two. got to win situationally. Uh, but I think there is there is capable of getting caught in, in both teams hitting in the 20s, and I wouldn't call that a shootout. You know, a game where one of the two teams is on top at a 28 to kind of 23 kind of clip or 29 to 20. Something like that could, could conceivably mm-hmm. happen with both of these teams. I think both of their offenses have been shown they can be held below 30. Uh, but I think both of those offenses have shown they can go over 40, so that's what makes these fun because it, I think plausibly it could go either of both, uh, either of those two ways. Yeah, I'm looking at this game, you know, and I'm hearing you talk about a lot of the strengths that the Patriots have on offense. I'm sitting there going back and I'm thinking, you know, there there is a lot of similarity. The Rams want to run. They're not the same team they were when the season started. When the season started, it was pass, 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 pass. And then as time went on and they went through their struggles in December, just like the Patriots did, they kind of went back to what they know they can do well, like really well, and that was pound, pound, pound. C.J. Anderson comes in and, and pounds the ball. They got the two-headed monster now, and then they can go back out and use play action to move on you know, on, on opposing defenses. And that's what they did a lot. They only ran for 77 yards against the Saints, but it was 77 good yards, tough yards that made the Saints respect at least a little bit what they can do. And... And that second, third, and fourth quarter, that's, why, that's how it went down. I was sitting there thinking, you, you're describing the Patriots offense and how they want to run. And you know, the receivers aren't the, the all the name well, Pro Bowl guys anymore, but they're, they run 3-4 deep. And so I'm sitting there thinking, this, this could be one of those games that it's a, it's a close, tight game that's low scoring or always could blow out into a total, you know, 35, 35 game. I don't know what to think of at this point. 
Yeah, and one of the things that, and this is, I think I've stayed away from these kinds of uh, phrases throughout the course of our little talk here, but and maybe this comes off as hot takey, and, and maybe maybe a Rams fan won't agree with me, but one of the people that I think uh, doesn't get credit, and I've probably been tooting this horn as much as anyone throughout the year, uh, I think Julian Edelman is the best is the best receiver in this game. I think he's the best offensive weapon that either team has, other than Gurley. I mean, obviously Ted Todd Gurley and, and even James White. Those are rare kind of. It's a different position, but I I'm curious to see in the notion of stopping someone. We've done this where Keenan Allen was on the other side. We spent an entire week talking about Keenan, uh-huh. and uh, he's the Pro Bowler, and and Jules out you know outperformed him pretty pretty decisively and then you go to the next game the entire week was about Tyree Kill and, and and Travis Kelsey and how can you possibly stop them and and Jules barely gets mentioned in a week and now again granted with a Super Bowl week you get two weeks to talk about this stuff so no one's going to be overlooked necessarily but the decisions that the Rams make with controlling him will go a long ways towards whether or not they're able to slow the offense. Julian Edelman is one of the best wide receivers in the league. He, he really is. I know it doesn't get framed that way, and maybe there's a stereotype there that goes along with it. Well, why that happens, that's that's always been my thought. But uh, he's really, really good. And, you know, we obviously have a lot of respect here for Keith Tlaib. He's so entertaining. He's such a rare body type, a big guy, a physical guy. The decisions I make with Khalid, with Tlaib, I think, will we'll tell you a lot with – how they how, how they sort of perceive the way to slow them? Do they? I mean, now after seeing the work that uh, the Patriots did against the Chiefs and Eric Berry, even though he plays safety, his body type is much more comparable to to, to Aqib. But I think they're going to have a problem with Julian, and, and I really haven't seen a team that has been willing to commit to stopping them and forcing Tom to go elsewhere. And when you do that. Shoot, you end up in 40-point games. So uh, that'll be interesting to me to see. When we're talking about how do you stop, how do you slow, it just talk goes to Tom. It always goes to Tom. But if you're overlooking uh, Julian Edelman, you're making a mistake. So I guess when you're talking, though, about guys who who also bring experience, and, you know, this that is one of the big differences in this game. The Patriots come in this game with loads and loads of experience, and there are very few players on the Rams roster that had that experience. So to, as a player, take us through this. How does this experience help the Patriots against well, the Rams? Well, I'll put it this way. Coach Belichick doesn't believe in it. So he doesn't allow you to think that, that hey, I've been there before. I'm good to go. I have an advantage over this guy. You know, here's where you have the advantage as, as, a, as a player going through Super Bowls. I, I was fortunate enough to be there at the right time and got to play in three or four. And, no, excuse me, us winning three or four and, and playing those three games. And the, the only thing I can tell you that it really helped me on the second one or on the third one is in the way that I prepared. Uh, and any vet on the team will tell you that. So there is an advantage in sort of time management in the week leading up to it. There's an advantage uh, on sort of game day operation stuff because the Super Bowl is so weird. You know, one of the, one old story that I re- do recall is, uh, when we played the, the, the Carolina Panthers, and, and not that I would expect the Rams to do this, but when we played the Panthers in our second one there, the one down in Houston, uh, in pregame, they were dancing and they were fired up and frothing, and it's so easy to understand that as a kid just waiting your whole life to, to be in the Super Bowl. You know, it's, it's emotional and it's really cool. But uh-huh. the one thing I think experience helps you with is to really temper your emotions pregame because you have to sort of pace yourself for what can be a five-hour 
ordeal. You know, it's not 315. <laughs> it's the, the Super Bowl takes forever. It's long. And if you, it's so easy to be emotional in pregame. It's so easy to get sort of emotionally taxed before you even get to that halftime. And the halftime itself is so huge. But I think that's probably the biggest thing that experience will help you. Having someone in the room going, chill, dude, this isn't, this isn't pump up speech game because you're going to need that for 70 reps potentially on either side of the ball, maybe 60, 55, whatever it is. But it's a pace game and it's a game where the emotional roller coaster is going to run the gamut. You know, obviously you can look to the, to the, to the Falcons game, how dramatically different one half was than the other. For us, our game with the Panthers, I mean, it was an absolute defensive war in the first half, barely any scoring on either side. And it's a track meet in the second. And we always kind of felt that it looked like they tired out a bit. They probably look at us the same way because we gave up a couple late scores there, but that's probably the biggest lesson you can learn from experience that the pace of the game, not to overexert yourself, not to give away drives where fatigue does kick in, to condition the right way leading up to it. You, you almost want to condition more. And just how to use your time as far as study and uh, just being mentally prepared. Other than that, a rookie can come in and play great in the Super Bowl. We've seen that a hundred times. All right, Matt, last question here for you. It's just understanding this is coming from, you know, we, we cover the Rams. This is a West Coast sure. thing. So we don't really know. And it's really about Tom Brady and Coach Belichick. How much time do these guys still have left? Oh, it's a great question uh, because, you know, Tom's a friend from, you know, we came in I, my, when the Rams did cut me in there in that 2000 season. That was that was Tom's first season there in that draft class, too. I was there playing on opening day with the Rams, so I've pretty much been through there from the day he was, and he's now played, you know, three times a, a normal long career in the NFL. So each time you, you try to project forward another, he, he's in, he's already in uncharted territory. So how much more uncharted territory can he take on? I would say simply this, um, if we're having this conversation a couple months ago, people would feel differently, but Tom wouldn't. If you're having this conversation right now, he looks no different than he did 10 years ago. Uh, this This late playoff stretch has been, it's the same guy. That's the best quarterback in football. It just, he's, he's, he's the same person. And I, the only thing I would sort of hang my hat on there as far as the antidotes is recent interviews they've done. And Tommy has said this several times that he intends to play to 45. He does. Now, obviously he and the organization got to get on the same page with the contract that would be, that would come after this next season. But Bill also in an interview, I believe is within these last couple of weeks of playoff stuff have talked about wanting to continue to do this for a long time. He, he doesn't sound like he's going anywhere. And if uh, the rules of the game are such, and uh, I wouldn't even say it's the rules. It's not the not touching the quarterback thing mm-hmm. as much as is Brady in and up center, under center as much as he is, much like Jared is out there for you guys. Under center, uh, 62% of the time I believe it was with Jared, and Brady was close to that with a high 50s. When you live under center and you're willing to have the running game be a big part of what you do, that lends itself to the whole Brady not being touched in the last two weeks. I mean, literally not being contacted other than just grazed across with the face for that for that penalty last week. If you're not getting touched, and it doesn't matter that you're 41 or it could be 31, and if you're as decisive and you see the game as well as he does and you're not having an arm problem in the world, I think 45 setting the bar low. <laughs> he could continue to play until an injury happens. So unfortunately for the rest of the league, and completely irregardless of what happens, uh, in this game between the Rams and Patriots. I think those guys are going to be here for several more years at the very, very least. See, that's the thing for me. I, um, I look at this game, and for the Rams, of all the things that are there, the Rams have to get a pass rush on them. They don't, if, they don't, if the Rams don't get a pass rush on Brady, 
I don't see them winning the game because they they need that pass rush. They have to find a way to disrupt him because he'll just dissect them. That's what he does. That's why you, you say he's one of the he's he's in your view the best, and to me he's one of the best, if not the best, in, in league history. And you have to get to him in order to, to throw him off. And I just don't. That that's how I see this game. That's my X factor. <laughs> is yeah, one of the, can one of the, the pass rush. And one of the toughest things about that, and again, I I I I know that I'm a, you know a friend of his and have been around him for years and years and years and an old teammate and all that kind of stuff. But you know, I was in New York for a few years and I used you know, and a captain on the team and I remember sort of sitting in game plan meetings and 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 having these kind of conversations and trying to figure out how the hell to slow them. All I can say on the whole, got to get to Tom, got to pass rush against Tom, got to disrupt Tom. That's literally everyone's goal each and yeah. every week, and it almost never happens. So one of the things that it kind of lends me back to this conversation about the old Rams stuff, a one Rams. If you're not going to get there, uh, and you know, if if Joey Bosa and Melvin Ingram can't get there, if D Ford, Chris Jones, and and Justin Houston can't get there, yeah, I have a ton of respect for for Aaron Donald. He's actually better than all those guys, of course, but only by a hair. Uh, and Chris Jones is awful good too. Uh, he is better, of course, he's better. Sue is 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 very very good, but they've seen Sue and they know they know his game and how they have to account for him. It does complicate things a little bit where you now have two interior problems, but. If if the whole thing hinges upon you about whether you do or don't get to Tom, I don't think that can ever be it because it you, you almost you don't want to have to say our only way of winning is is if something happens that usually doesn't that that generally isn't the plan uh, that works so you're going to have to disrupt routes you're going to have to stop the running game you're going to have to do other things that maybe allow them to pin their ears back if 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 they're in third and twos forget about it if they're in third and fives forget about it you need them in third and nine so you got to stop the run before you ever get to that stuff yeah well the reason why I'm saying they have to rush is just because I know this defense very well and, right and they're they're very much one those defenses that is bend but don't break. They rarely shut people sure. down, sure. and so and one of the key things that gets them to shut people down is a pass rush. So that's I think for the Rams, that's a big mismatch. Then they have to do it, or they better find to, to find a way in their magic hat <laughs> to to uh, to disrupt the way you're saying. Well, look, you spent a lot of time with me, almost 40 minutes. I wanted to say I appreciate you coming on. You give us a lot of insight and help us to get to know the opponent a little bit. Um, you know, where can people find you? This is this is good stuff. Yeah, great insight today. Uh, I'm at Chatham58 on Twitter, at, at C-H-A-T-H-A-M 58 on Twitter. Uh, I write for The Athletic, and that's The Athletic Boston, so I, I don't suspect a lot of Rams fans are going to end up on there, but that's my job. Uh, and then I also uh, am an analyst for the New England Sports Network, which is Nesson. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, if, if for whatever reason you, you you wander over to those channels, if you have cable, we're all over the country, and we'll be we'll covering the, the Rams and Patriots throughout this uh, upcoming Super Bowl weeks. Well, we actually have some pretty good fans. Uh, you have a podcast too, right? Yeah, fair enough. You know what? I, I can't even plug my own stuff correctly. What am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's called the Real Thing Patriots podcast. Uh, I just put up a show this morning, uh, and that's on Block Talk Radio. You can find it on, IT- on iTunes as well. Uh, but the Real Thing Patriots podcast, it, I guess if you're, if you're watching from the other side and you want to learn a little bit about, you know, the non-star players, and we try to do our, our best to – talk about a lot of the un, unsung guys on that roster. So if you want to learn about the, the non-10 guys, the other 43 that you don't often hear about, I spent the, a show this week talking about that depth, guys. And personally, I will do next week's show 
from down in Atlanta. Um, and uh, I haven't looked, uh, other than, you know, just the sort of cursory comments I made there about the Rams, I haven't looked very carefully at them yet. And we don't do our pregame show until until next week, until we've had some time to study them, and I haven't done it. But that'll be out next week as well in the same in the same vehicles. So that now that's the proper way to, to put it out there right there. Um, <laughs> all right, folks, again, this is Matt Chatham. Uh, check him out. I am really impressed with the work he's done on the show for us today. And thanks so much, Matt. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye right. now. Thank you. Take care. All right, brother. Well, what do you think of that conversation? My man knows what he's talking about. And to be completely honest with you, uh, I wouldn't want to have any other Patriot guy on my show than that guy. A, because he played and he was, again, prag- you've heard me say the word pragmatic. He, that, that was the viewpoint that he had. And when, you know, when he talks about, you know, losing sight of Julian Edelman, he has a very valid point. I mean, if there's a guy that can beat you in that receiving corpse, it's that guy because he is Mr. Reliable. I can't – you remember the catch that he made last year? Or maybe it was the year before he made the catch and it looked like the ball hit the dirt and he scooped it up and they ended up winning on that drive. I mean, dude, the guy is a pro bowl player and he's playing at a high level. You better watch out for that guy. I think what really caught me off guard in the conversation was – and it was really just a kind of a common sense thing, is I really honestly believe if, if the Rams are going to win this game, they have to get pressure on Brady. I'm not saying they have to sack him. I'm just saying they have to get him moving. And, man, he really, really hit me hard when the idea is, is, is that's fine, but guess what? What do you think the Chiefs were doing? What do you think everybody else was trying to do to him? It's hard to get to Tom Brady. He's got a quick release. The ball is out fast. He takes it from under center. And the Rams have a very real challenge. And they're going to have to make up their mind how they want to deal with this. If they can't get to Brady, they they have to adapt and adjust quickly in this game if they're going to be able to hang there. And I guess guess the question I have for you is, what do the Rams do if they can't get to Brady? Oh, it's going to be a long day. uh, Because the interesting part about that is – you know, the Rams play a lot of zone because that's what Peters does best. And, and that's how, you know, our, our secondary plays well is by playing a lot of zone. And if you're if you're backing up and doing that off the snap and, you know, Brady, like you said in that interview, you said, hey, man, he'll pick you apart. And he will definitely do that if you are playing zone and, and he's taking a two-step, three-step drop, you know, because it's Donald and Sue coming up the middle. It's going to be very difficult, and if they so, it's going to be interesting to see what Wade does in response mm-hmm. to that. Because if they're doing that early, then we better start sending a little bit of extra pressure. We better start playing bump and run, which is something that Peters has been exposed in a time or two, and uh, you know, e- e- you know, even Barron. Uh, but it, Wade's gonna he's gonna be up to the task, though I think, because if you look at his statistics against the Patriots, they are very good. He has been good against the Patriots, and so. Uh, this this game hopefully is no different, uh, but you're going to have to send pressure. If you can't get home with four, then you're going to have to send pressure. But the first goal is to stop Sony Michelle. That's the first goal, like they've done with Ezekiel Elliott and they did with Kamara and Ingram. I mean, they held all those guys underneath 100 yards, and this, this next week, not now, but this next upcoming week, they're going to have to be ready to do that again. That way we make them one-dimensional. That's the goal. That's what the Giants did when they won it in 08, and they caused that pressure, and they knocked Brady on his butt time after time after time. And uh, it still took a, a huge catch by Tyree for them to even win that game, even when they were putting Brady on his butt all the time. So they're going to have to do it, though. Well, to me, the only I guess the only beef I would have with Chad, the only disagreement I would have is that 
you know, he was very confident that teams aren't going to touch Brady. Well, you know what? Brady's been touched before. The Eagles got to him last year. You know, he's lost, he lost a year to a torn ACL because he got hit where he got hit. It's not like he's never been touched before. And I'm not saying, I refuse to say that the Rams will not get pressure on him. I do think he's right, though, that it, what's going to happen if they don't get pressure on him. So, yeah, I just look at this game going, I don't see how the Rams win this game without some measure of pressure, but I reject the idea that they can't get pressure. I guess that's me clarifying what I'm trying to say. Well, getting pressure and getting sacks are obviously two completely different animals. And the Rams were one of the best in the league, if not the best in the league, uh, in total quarterback pressures. You know, we, Brady is a statue back there. He's not a Roethlisberger. He's obviously not a Wilson type, and he doesn't really – I mean, he can sidestep and get away from stuff, but, you know, that, that, that's where the, the Rams' strength is up the middle. And if you can pancake the daggum pocket – and to where he can't step anywhere, it's going to be a long day for him. And so, really, you paid Donald all this money, and he's obviously lived up to it thus far in his whole career, which he was uh, warranted. Uh, but you paid Sue, and look what he's done the past three weeks. You got to feel kind of good as a Ram fan saying, hey, man, our two big boys up front, you know, they've been making plays, and why not now? Why not in the biggest moment of their careers? Why not in the biggest game of their careers against the GOAT? the best to ever do it, you know, coach and quarterback combo. Why not now? And so I, I think that they're up to the task. And if they can get him moving, as you said, to where he starts making some errant throws, you know, it could be a long day for him. But, you know, what? the cornerbacks are going to have to have their eyes on him. Like, Nikhil Roby Coleman, don't be, you know, knocking dudes out of bounds on the ball is four, <laughs> four yards because you, you can't do that against Brady. But, but you got to have your eyes on the ball and, and on him. So, it's going to be a challenge, man, but but the big boys up front, this is where they're going to make their money. And, and Fowler, too. You know, we, we need them the most right now, obviously. Well, that's one. Th- I'm looking at how the Rams have played the last two weeks, and we've seen Michael Brockers come alive. And because we're seeing more pressure on the, in those front three, we're seeing Fowler get more opportunities. We're seeing Evacan get more opportunities as well. And so I don't I don't think it's a given. And with when it comes to Brady, I, I think – the one thing that he that Matt mentioned in that interview was he still looks the same as he did 10 years ago. Yes, you know what? You're right. He still has the same arm strength. He still has the same reflexes, the same decision-making. But I'll tell you one area where Brady is not the same. He's not as fluid in the pocket. He's It's impossible. You're in your 40s, man. You're just not as fluid. He's a little bit slower back there, and that's all it takes. We're not talking sacks. We're just talking making him uncomfortable. We've seen it with golf. What happens with golf when he gets uncomfortable back there? Starts it's, making mistakes. It's trouble. Yeah, it's you trouble. You know, I mean, obviously he's going to make more mistakes. He's younger. He's not there yet. Brady will definitely make fewer mistakes. But I'm just saying that, you know, just getting some pressure on him will make a difference, and that's that's what I'm talking about. So there you go. Yep. They're going to have to do it, dude. Um, and they know that. I mean, uh, the coaching staff, they know it. And, uh, you know, as he said, he's like, everybody's been trying to do it. Well, any quarterback that faces pressure is not going to be as good as if they were not facing pressure. Hello. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and that's the rule of thumb. And so, uh, you know, for me, again, it's going to be how does Wade scheme against their wide receiving corpse 
Do do we stick to the zone concept, which we've been doing a lot of, or do we try to get after Brady and, and kind of get in those guys' faces and mistime the routes, as as what Matt was saying in, in the interview? It's like, you know, mistime the routes and bump them at the line and all these things. I mean, is that something that the Rams are going to do? And Philip Dorsett's not going to beat you physically. Julian Edelman's not necessarily going to beat you physically. And they're not going to burn you deep, you know, unless there's a guy like Lamarcus Joyner back there who can't jump at the right time. Or, or, you know what I'm saying? So these guys aren't going to beat you deep, and they're not going to outman you physically. So do the Rams get physical? And, and I think this is a week where you, you potentially could. Uh, obviously, the game flow is going to be a great dictation of what they do. But the point is, is the Rams got to get up first. In my opinion, he said it. He's like, when the Patriots are behind and they're feeling like they have to force things to try to the you know the motive for any team going against the Patriots. Yeah. All right. Just so we close things out here, just want to give you some information. Um, Tom Brady was sacked this year twenty-one times, so that's a little less than a little more, sorry, than one per game. He has been sacked six times. If I'm reading this correct, no, sorry, no, has not been sacked in the playoffs at all. At so, all. At all. So doing the math here, twenty-one sacks. They played 18, 18 games this year, so a little more than one in 18 games. So the Rams definitely have their work cut out for them. Only 21 sacks in 18 games this year. Wow. Yeah, but don't don't get it twisted, though, dude. This Patriots offensive line has got their hands full because this is going to be the best defensive line and defensive front that they have faced all year. And so if you look at their schedule, the Rams are better than any team and every team outside of maybe Kansas City. But Kansas City, man, they looked old and slow when they played them in the championship game. They just did not. Justin Houston looked like he was just tired, tired, tired and worn out and beat down. And so it was D Ford. And so and they have one on one matchups. And so if you put one on one matchups on guys like Fowler and even Samson Ibukam, I'm, I feel I feel good about those chances because they're going to Donald. They're going to double down on Donald. And so somebody's going to get home. Well, I mean, look at. I mean, you look at the teams they played. So they they um, they got beat by Jacksonville in week two. That's back when Jacksonville was actually competing. Right, Clay um, Campbell. He's like their best off their best defensive lineman. Okay. Next, all right. So they got beat by the Lions, but the Lions ran all over them. That's different. Yep, um, they ran the ball. Time control. The in week five, the the Colts uh, scored twenty four on them. Um, for that game, though, the Colts defense was not jailed yet at all. Here's the one. The Patriots being the Bears, 38-31 on October 21st. Now, that one has me curious. 38 points on, on the Bears defense. After that, Buffalo, Green Bay, and they lose to Tennessee badly. Um, Tennessee. Look at that game. They lost to Tennessee. Tell me, who does Tennessee have up front that scares you? Who do they have? Can you name anybody? No one was not exactly. Um, And so, take something from that playbook and apply it. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. Uh, So they lose twice in December. Also, they lose to the Miami, 34-33. The the Pittsburgh beats them, and Pittsburgh kind of let them off the hook. If you remember what Matt said in that game. Yep. Uh, I just look at this and go, well, you know, of course the Patriots are different in the postseason. They always are. They always seem to put together. But I just look at that, and I think in a lot of ways you're right. I mean, look who the Rams have played this year. If I look at the Rams schedule versus the um, the the New England schedule, I don't think it compares. This doesn't compare. The Rams face a much tougher road. 
And, dude, you just said it, dude. The Patriots are different in the playoffs. And look at the Rams. Dude, the Rams are different in the playoffs. We are different than what we were during the regular season. I mean, we've stopped the run. Imagine yeah, that. We, we do. stop the run. And so to sit here and say that the Patriots offensive line is not is is so you know, so much of a big unit that they're untouchable and Brady's untouchable and we're not gonna get penetration, you're full of it, dude. You're I mean, because you have the best player in the league in Aaron Donald at D tackle who's gonna manhandle a couple guys and 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 require two guys to block him. And so the, the defense is yes, they both. This is why this matchup is so awesome, and I would have it no other way. I did not want to play the Chiefs again. I wanted the Patriots so we could rub it in their faces and beat these guys down and send Brady and Belichick on the way out, which will not happen, as he said in the interview. <laughs> and I agree. I agree with him. They're going to be around. Sorry, say sorry. Uh, the division and all those teams in the division, man. Sorry about it because this guy's going to be around. Bar- well, Bushy. yeah. You name name a tougher twosome they face in the defensive line. That's Aaron Donald and Dominic Sue, and then of course you have Michael Brockers heating up now as well. I don't; they haven't faced a tougher front defensive lineman this year. Nobody's and, been this tough. And so. dude, the secondary is freaking good. Dude, our secondary has been playing really well. I mean, you, you talk about. I mean, Joiner's kind of a little bit of an outlier because we all know that he has not had a great year, and he probably will be gone after the end of this year. You know, just based on pure numbers, uh, because you can find his talent level in the draft or free agency potentially. But overall, man, they have been good, dude. And since and the numbers that you look on, go watch ESPN tomorrow and watch them pull up the statistics on what the Rams defense was the first ten weeks and what they were when Tlaib came back and what they've been. It, it is uh, it's crazy to see the turnaround that they've had. And like I just mentioned, this playoff Rams defense is playing at a high level at the most you know right opportune time. And again, stop the run, man. You're gonna have to keep an eye on Sonny Michelle and White out of the backfield. I mean, dude, it's not a pushover. This is a Super Bowl, but we deserve to be here, and it's gonna be an awesome matchup. That's all there is to it. All right, folks. So that's it. That, that's our wrap here. Nice, a nice, good podcast full of all kinds of stuff to get you uh, prepped for the Super Bowl week. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Talk Rams and on Facebook at facebookcom forward Talk. Also find me on Twitter at DC Paul. You can find the Rampage Crew. I'm gonna let you say this, say this whole thing because it's real long. At on, Rampage Radio Pod. That's it. <laughs> at Rampage Radio Pod on Twitter. Don't forget us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, all those places, and of course iBeatRadio.com. They play our shows Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific time. All right. So we are now beginning Super Bowl week. It's underway. Four. Oh, I'm so excited, dude. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> this is I, it, I folks. asked my mom. Dude, I asked my mom. I was like, because I was looking at my jerseys, and I have a Boulder jersey. I don't know why I still have that one, but I have it. I have, which, and let me tell you something. Let me recorrect that. I really like Boulder, and he is an outstanding person. Outstanding dude. We had an interview with him. He was, he's awesome, bro. And so I have that one. I have the Tory Holt, the gold one, the gold jersey, nasty looking one. I have it. And then uh, I have the Steven Jackson. But I asked my mom and said, Mom, listen, I need this throwback jersey, and I, and I can't pay for it. And, and I asked for Johnny Hecker. I was like, hey, Mom, can you get me Johnny Hecker's uh, throwback jersey? So hopefully I'll have that coming in the mail. Everyone be repping your gear this week, baby. I got my wife who will be, who'll be repping her James Laurinaitis jersey. Oh, I have that one too. Yeah, okay. My daughter, yeah, <laughs> Laurinaitis. My daughter, Todd Gurley. And me, the throwback Eric Dickerson. So that's there dope. you go. That's there dope. you go. All right, folks, that's it for us.
We'll be back. It's Super Bowl week, folks. See ya. That's right. Deuces. Where else can a city this loud be this left on? And 30 feet is still in range. Where else is history still in the make? The NBA, only here. Season begins December 22nd on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. Let's say you make it to the top. What's next? Relish in the glory of your accomplishments? Okay, sure, for a minute. But then you move forward. Take the 2021 Escalade. Cadillac's newest arrival is more than just a celebration of iconic luxury. It's the most technologically advanced Escalade ever. Because arriving is just the beginning. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Get really into your favorite shows and movies all in one place with Flex, a 4K streaming box you get free with Xfinity Internet. And get Peacock Premium at no additional cost. Learn more at Xfinity.com slash Flex. Restrictions apply requires postpaid Xfinity Internet excluding Internet essentials. One device included.